Hello, here we go with the English series Agenda Publica Conversations, the podcast where you can listen to the conversation among experts on different topics in the fields of current global politics and economics. Enjoy! I am Argelia Queral, Professor of Constitutional Law. Today is my pleasure to present the conversation between my close friend, the NYU Constitutional Law Professor Joseph Weiler, expert on European issues, and Anthony Garner, former USA Ambassador to the European Union. Do not miss it. This is a special recording of Agenda Publica. Uh, my name is Joseph Weiler, and I have with me Anthony Gardner, former ambassador of the United States to the European Union, and recently author of a book called Stars and Stripes, and which actually analyzes and describes the relationship between the United States and the European Union. And at the time it was written, the book itself is I would say rather optimistic about the at least possibilities of a productive and fruitful relationship between the European Union and the United States. Would that be a reasonably good uh, assessment of the tone of the book? It, it is a good assessment. First of all, it, Professor Weiler, good to be with you again. Um, known each other for such a long time and you've done so much for the area of US-EU studies. The book is optimistic, but I hope it's not naive because of course we're facing enormous challenges and the last four years have added to those challenges. Um, so a Biden administration certainly has its hands full. Uh, but the, the, in a short, uh, very briefly, the reason I'm optimistic is that uh, we are being pushed to work together because of the pressures that we often share, some divergences clearly, but uh, our relative weight in the world is uh, certainly shrinking. Uh, and there are areas where we do need to collaborate and we can, that's what the book argues. So, but if we look today, if you just take a snapshot, uh, the twilight of the current Trump administration, uh, yeah, my uh, flash assessment, I don't recall ever, such a low in the relationship between the United States and the European Union. So give us, before we talk about what might happen again, perhaps in the future, give us your assessment where relations between the EU and the United States stand today. I think of so many fronts where it could probably be described as a nader in such relations. Oh, well, for sure, dire, absolutely dire. And let's all remember that uh, this president uh, jumped the rails, as I call it. Uh, he, he left, abandoned 60 years of bipartisan U.S. foreign policy with regard to Europe and European integration. And here I'm not forgetting that we've had our ups and lows. We've had our challenges. I started my job as ambassador in Brussels on the heels of the Snowden revelations. So I'm not pretending for a moment we haven't had crises before. But Certainly the last four years have been absolute rock bottom, partly because this president, for rather bizarre reasons, uh, uh, some of which I understand, some of which I don't, has concluded that the EU uh, is worse than uh, a waste of time, that it is uh, an enemy. 
He described it as a foe, as you recall. He described it as worse than China, but smaller. He said it was set up by Germany to beat us in trade. All of which, all the statements, of course, are absurd. Um, and I said I understand some of his perspective because in his gross characterization of the EU, he believes that the EU adds leverage to the member states and therefore can, can, can negotiate more effectively with the United States and with the world, which is true. And he doesn't like that. Now, he wants to negotiate one-on-one, -on -one, bilaterally, transactionally, uh, and obviously get better results. So that irritates him. He's irritated by the trade in uh, the imbalance in goods trade. I say goods trade, business services, as you well know, it's much more balanced. But he's focused only on the goods trade. So because of these gross mischaracterizations, he has tried to undermine the EU. He's called for more Brexits and he has refused to work with the EU on issues of fundamental concern, namely, what do we do about China? And, you know, Joe, it, it, it's, it's something that I simply cannot understand. It is a real historic failure um, to, to, you know, to seize this opportunity of working with our essential partner, the European Union. But uh, let's, let's just uh, step back a bit. And I don't uh, disagree with you on the destructive uh, Trump effect, but uh, is it really a totally uh, one-sided story? Uh, if we go back to the defunct TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Proposed Agreement, uh, which would have really been a, a very important uh, signpost in the collaborative relationship between the European Union and the USA, I think the EU has at least as much, if not more, to explain why that project failed than the United States. And if we think about uh, Europe as a whole and not specifically the EU, and now I'm referring to NATO, uh, Trump had a point. Uh, for many years, Europe was taking a free ride on the United States. And if we look at its uh, largest country, the Germany, uh, he has a point that they are under-contributing to the defense of Europe. Wouldn't you agree with that? Well, partly, yes, I would. I was very involved in TTIP, but a lot of blame can easily go around, and I write about it in, in the book you mentioned. A lot of blame can go around. Uh, the EU did make some mistakes. Public opinion in Europe, as you mentioned, was far more negative than in the United States. But there were also things that we did on our side that I thought were strategically wrong. But we are where we are. We were too ambitious. Uh, we underestimated the amount of, um, you know, a political opposition, public opposition. Uh, we will need to be much more focused and targeted uh, in what we can do. And by the way, I think there are things that we can do, even in a short space of time, that are economically meaningful. You know, this debate about defense spending has been around for decades, uh, not new. Uh, President Obama certainly made the case, and by the way, with success. So it's not just Donald Trump successfully pushing some member states to increase their defense spending. But here's where I slowly diverge from this assessment um, that it's all Europe's fault. Uh, yes, of course, Germany must be faster in, in reaching the 2% threshold, but burden sharing is more than just how much a country spends on defense. 
It's about sharing burdens. And those burdens can be combating climate change. Those burdens can be dealing with massive migration flows and others, other burdens. On that score, Europe actually comes out less you know, badly than otherwise it would. The second point I would make is that uh, it's not just about defense spending, it's how the money is spent. And in fact, now on that metric, some European member states come out terribly because not only do they spend little, there's the case of Belgium that spends 1% of its GDP, it's that they spend the majority of that on things that are not relevant to battle readiness, such as pensions and salaries. So, and I've done the math on some member states, and the numbers you come up with are truly very small. They are rounding errors for the Pentagon. And of course, there's bitterness in the United States that wealthy countries in Europe are not paying their way. Um, and that has to be redressed uh, for sure. I didn't want to suggest that Europe alone is responsible, but uh, I think maybe uh, my role here is a little bit to be the devil's advocate and to show mm -hmm. that it's not a black and white picture because one of the results of the Trump administration, it's the ease with which one can put all the ills, uh, not only in that relationship, but geopolitically, uh, uh, geopolitically generally at the door of the United States and uh, Trump, Trump, Trump. Uh, so it's in that sense that uh, I asked uh, my question. Mm -hmm. uh, I could add to your statistics, if we take the aggregate spending on defense of all the member states of the European Union, it's uh, larger than the defense budget of Russia, but the way they spend it, the lack of collab collaboration among themselves in putting that money collectively, uh, where the sum total would be greater than the, the different parts is also lamentable. Uh, speaking uh, speaking about uh, Europe uh, as a whole, uh, let's just put aside a minute the United States. You, as ambassador, you were in a very privileged position to observe and understand the European Union. Uh, where do you think its challenges lie today? Well, there are many challenges. Uh, but before I get there, let me do one point I wanted to make on the prior question. You know, What's really striking to me is the fact that there is a lack of public perception of a military threat. And I say this point because it'll be very hard for any politician, any legislature to justify increased defense spending when the public simply doesn't see a threat. They see a climate threat. They see a challenge, if not a threat, in migration. But they don't see a security threat. And that's the case in Germany for sure. So that worries me, you know, and it comes out in poll after poll. How is the German government going to justify reaching 2% when the German people just don't see it's necessary? Now, in terms of, you know, threats to the EU, there are loads, of course, but I, I point out one of them, which is perhaps one that some, many people wouldn't expect me to say, because it's not the financial crisis, it's not the pandemic. Uh, it, it's, it's the threat to uh, uh, values from certain member states of the EU. And this, I think, is a really fundamental threat because what else is the EU if not a community of values and laws and institutions, right? As you know better than anybody. And if it's incapable of ensuring respect for basic principles in the Charter of Fundamental Rights, um, this is, I think, a real problem. Uh, it loses its ability to project, not only to protect its values, but to project its values 
um, and to be this community uh, of, of, of countries that believe in certain basic things, whether it's independence of the judiciary, independence of the media, and so forth. So I think this is, you know, and, and for it, it's an important uh, it's an important challenge and one that is un understandably at the heart of the fights around the uh, way that the financial package is uh, been finally agreed in the parliament. Um, so I would put that at the top of my list. So if we if we stick if we set aside the problem of values, and I'll come back to it in a minute, and I uh, entirely share your point of view, although the solution to that doesn't seem easy. But uh, if we go back to the security threat and the lack of perception, and in democracies, indeed, uh, to advance a policy which requires some kind of sacrifice, and here I mean sacrifice uh, not in the battlefield, but in allocation of uh, scarce resources, I recall decades ago, an article by Stanley Hoffman, uh, who with every fiber in his body would could be set up as somebody who is the opposite of Donald Trump. But I recall him saying maybe the only solution to this European complacency when it comes to security is for the United States to announce that it will be withdrawing its forces from uh, its native forces from Europe as a way of forcing the Europeans to to uh, face realistically their responsibility in this area. Uh, I imagine it was somewhat tongue in cheek, but he was trying to make uh, he was trying to make uh, a point there. How would you see awakening Europeans that there is a security threat? And here Europe is a little bit split because if you go to Poland, if you go to Latvia, if you go to Lithuania or to Estonia, they perceive the security threat quite realistically. So what would one do and what might the United States do? What might Biden do, apart from specific policies, to have that kind of transformation in the consciousness of Europe when it comes to security? Well, there's no easy answer to that. Uh, I would not uh, be in favor of a withdrawal. Uh, I would not be in favor of withdrawal of troops from Germany. You know, the idea that this is all a great gift, a favor that the United States does to Europe, I think is not correct. I'm not suggesting that you were implying that, but I think many in the United States think that this is a this is a freebie. This is a gift. Uh, we get a lot out of this, too. Um, you know, so the centers that we have in Germany actually are relevant for military operations much further afield and are necessary. The withdrawal of troops from Germany was a political statement opposed by the military itself, who said we actually you know, want to have bases uh, in Germany. And uh, in addition to that, I think we do have a responsibility as still uh, the world's leader and a, a, an ally to be present uh, physically, uh, including in the Baltic republics, which, as you said, face a real threat. Now, how are we going to change the perception? Well, no easy answer to that. Uh, the pressure will continue. Uh, together, I think we can work with some allies to really be more effective in responding to uh, threats on many levels, particularly election interference, cyber threats. So it's not just, you know, forces on the ground. Um, I think certainly our intelligence services understand the threat. Our elites understand the threat. Uh, but as you suggested, getting the publics to understand the threat, I don't have an easy answer for that. I I'm not sure how we do it, to be honest. Is any of the damage 
created by the Trump administration permanent. Uh, and I'll tell you what I have in mind. Uh, just as you said that uh, in a democracy, uh, if you don't have public support, uh, you cannot advance policies that demand some kind of sacrifice. Uh, you don't get reelected. Uh, but also in the relationship between the United States and Europe, let's focus a little bit on the public dimension. I would say that in the United States, the attitude towards the European Union, apart from these kind of accusations, they're taking a free ride, etc., it can be characterized as ignorance and indifference. Uh, nobody, at least among the class politique in Europe, but I would think globally, uh, is indifferent or ignorant about the United States, its prowess, uh, its achievements and its failures. But attitudes, uh, which always there was a, a streak of anti-Americanism in public opinion in Europe, now it's... Uh, uh, anti-Americanism coupled with contempt. Uh, do you think that's recoverable? If we have two polities where even if the leadership understands that uh, better together, uh, if the public opinions in both those polities uh, is on the one hand ignorant and indifferent and the other hand uh, still a sliver of anti-Americanism, but now a real deep loss of respect. Isn't that an impediment for a restart, a reboot of a productive relationship? Oh, well, for, for sure. Look, I'm generally optimistic in, in a sense that once Trump is gone and President-elect Biden takes power, that the polls will show a dramatic increase in in popularity and respect for the United States. But you're right that uh, the world has seen a side of the United States, which probably it's rarely have ever seen, in the sense that American democracy has shown itself to be very brittle and to be at risk. In a way, frankly, I don't think it's ever shown itself before, even in the very troubled times of the Vietnam War. Um, you know, our, our, our democracy was, I think, more or less functioned properly. And, you know, our courts still have functioned. Our media, have, of course, have functioned. But... There's been real concern around the world that we have had a president who has trampled on fundamental norms of behavior. And that's what I think is very troubling to our allies saying, oh, my God, maybe the United States is not as dependable as we thought it would be. It's perhaps not the model that we thought it would be. So, you know, I'm not suggesting this is going to be easy to fix. One of the things that a President Biden will have to do is to be humble. You know, the United States has gone on around the world often preaching to other countries about anti-corruption, good governance and transparency and all these things and human rights, which all of which I think are important principles that the Biden administration will espouse. But we're going to have to do it with humility because we have hardly been a good model for any of those principles. Trump has embraced autocrats around the world. He's barely talked about human rights and only did so once the Chinese didn't give him what he wanted to give him during the trade negotiations. So the bottom line is I, I think that's, that most of it is, is fixable, uh, but there will be concerns for sure among our allies uh, longer term to see will Donald Trump come back after four years? Will Ivanka Trump be back after four years? So the jury will be out.
And it's not only values that uh, you can't preach uh, leadership of the so-called free world and uh, human rights, etc. It's also a decline in the respect for American competence. The colossal yes. mismanagement of the COVID crisis uh, had the world at first astonished and then uh, contempt, contemptuous of the United States. This is the United States, which even... Uh, uh, <laughs> in previous crisis was always looked at as they know how to manage crises. They are competent in the face of, for example, the previous economic crisis. And now they uh, appear to be uh, far less competent than previously perceived. Absolutely. I agree with you completely. It's 240,000 dead and still many millions of Americans think that wearing a mask is a political or a cultural statement. Many Americans still doubt climate change. You know, um, look, if I had to put on my rose-tinted glasses for a moment, I like to think that uh, this experience of, in the United States will be a wake-up call to other countries, uh, including our allies, that, that democratic systems are never fully won. They have to be fought for uh, every election, certainly you know, every generation. Uh, one thing I'll say about the United States that does give me some optimism, because we've seen prior crises in the past. I mentioned the 1960s. You know, we, we still are a country that, on the whole, is able to look itself in the mirror. And on the whole, is able to make, uh, you know, to take actions to correct uh, deficiencies, right? We have in the past. I, I hope we can do it now. Um, uh, you know, the country is highly polarized. Uh, I'm not suggesting that Joe Biden can fix the problem, but I think he is the man for the moment in that he can at least reduce the polarization we have in our society. But you put a, your, your finger on a key point. You know, um, the quality of information in our democracy clearly has degraded terribly. And uh, many people now, as a result of that, are living in echo chambers. Um, and it leads to a question is how we actually address the question of uh, misinformation uh, through social media um, and, uh, and trying to, to improve the quality of our debate. That's a problem that uh, faces both the United States and Europe. Uh the rise of populism in uh, within Europe. It's no longer uh, a marginal uh, phenomenon confined to the lunatic fringe on the left or the right. It's mainstream politics in Europe. Uh, Marine Le Pen won the last uh, elections to the European Parliament. Uh, uh, if you think and I'm not mentioning the usual suspects. If you think uh, Salvini Italy, IFD, Germany, etc. And that too is in some ways a result about these chamber echoes. Do you have any thoughts on how one faces that, how one corrects that? Is it not the case that we have, if we have the internet, that's what we stuck with? Well, uh, this is a difficult balancing act for sure. We don't want to lose uh, our liberties, including freedom of speech. But Europe has been more far-reaching and far-sighted, I think, in the way it's going about finding the right balance. 
it's uh, reassessing the e-commerce directive, writing its Digital Services Act, trying to find the balance of liabilities that online platforms should legitimately have for content that they host and they monetize, importantly. The United States has been, I think, uh, further behind. Although, as we've all seen, a lot is happening behind the scenes, including in Congress. There is a lot of uh, concern, growing concern, on a bipartisan basis about how large platforms, sometimes having the power of large states, you know, have on our debate. And I think a lot of the CEOs of these companies recognize that they don't want to be making these fundamental decisions. They should be uh, subject to regulation. You know, it's, it's for the legislatures to find these uh, balances between free speech and, and responsibility. And look, here I'm not suggesting for a moment that these large successful companies should necessarily be bro broken apart, but there's a lot that can be done, for example, in terms of greater transparency and accountability of these platforms. A lot that can be done, for example, in ensuring that these platforms publish their, their policies and that third-party independent uh, entities uh, audit and verify whether these companies are living up to those policies. And indeed, in certain circumstances, that uh, the algorithms, which often spit out you know, decisions, uh, are audited to determine whether they are biased or, um, you know, uh, determine outcomes which are dangerous for society. So there's a lot that we can do and we should do across the field, not just in antitrust, uh, but more broadly to ensure, as we were saying before, Joe, that the quality of our debate remains as high as possible. And the same applies, by the way, in terms of finding the right equilibrium between the rights of content creators and the platforms who monetize that content, um, often in a positive way, but sometimes perhaps not providing sufficient remuneration for those who create the content in the first place. One last question on uh, this kind of fraught relationship. You mentioned uh, the United States uh, and Joe Biden would have to show a lot more humility. But you also raised the specter, and I think it's a real and present danger, of in four years' time, uh, if not Trump, Trumpism returning. And although he won decisively the popular vote, uh, we all know that uh, you win presidential elections in the so-called battleground states. And there, the reversal was, uh, these are slim majorities. If he's thinking about uh, re-election or he's thinking that Trumpism should not return, humility doesn't go down so well with, uh, say, 71 millions who voted for Trump. And he will be trolling politics, Trump himself, for the next four years. That's a delicate uh, issue for Biden. Showing humility will not go down well with the uh, Make America Great Again crowd. For sure. Look, he, uh, look, uh, President-elect Biden won, as you say, in the battleground states by slim majorities. But let's remember a greater majority than the one that Trump had with regard to Hillary Clinton. 
But you're right. He's going to need to show leadership. He will need to show strength. Uh, he will need to inspire. Um, <clears throat> he cannot be bullied. Uh, on the international stage, as I suggest, I think he will need to show some humility here because preaching just simply won't work. Um, but, you know, time will be very short and he will may he may face a Senate if if Georgia doesn't flip to the Democrats. He may face a Republican Senate, which <clears throat> under Senator Mitch McConnell will try almost certainly to block many important initiatives of the new administration, as happened under Obama. So no one is pretending, <clears throat> I think, for sure that this is going to be an easy run. Uh, but as you suggested, and I agree, a lot is riding on the next four years. A lot is riding on the next four years. Because if we can't prove, us in the United States, together with our allies in Europe, that this form of leadership yields better results than the populist demagogic bullying, which we've had over the four years in the U.S. and in some European countries, you know, if we can't do that, we're in for a rough ride. Let's uh, now just imagine that uh, Biden on the 20th of January becomes president of the United States and that on both sides, both European and American, and here I'm speaking as both an American and European citizen, uh, there's a lot of goodwill to put this uh, immediate past behind us and work together. Let's just go together over the major geopolitical challenges that a restored uh, Atlantic Alliance will be facing. So probably number one on the list is China. What do you think the Atlantic response reaction strategy towards China should be? Well, as, as you very well know, there are few issues in the United States where there is bipartisan consensus, uh, and China is one of them. There are essentially no doves on China. You know, even in the darkest days of the U.S.-Soviet dispute, there were some doves on the Soviet Union. Today, there are no doves on China. So it's, you know, skepticism and indeed concern about Chinese objectives in economic affairs, political security affairs is, uh, is there and will, will continue. The, the question is about tactics, tactics, tactics. And I think that uh, many on the Democratic and some on the Republican side uh, believe that Donald Trump engaged in mistaken tactics. And in fact, the results speak for themselves because the trade deal didn't achieve its objectives. By, in fact, for on many, on many levels, and one of them is that the trade deficit um, in which I, in fact, went up, it didn't go down. A lot of our farmers lost their uh, markets. They were compensated, of course, by government handouts, but they lost their markets. Um, our competitive position has been uh, eroded, um, <clears throat> and uh, a lot of our leading co leading uh, companies have had to restructure their supply chains um, to you know in a way that's been very problematic for them. So the first thing I'd like us to do um, is first we need to be tough on on China in in areas as we have in the past, for example, rights of navigation, South China Sea, defense of Taiwan, uh, speak out in terms of human rights and shine an uncomfortable light on what's going on with the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang. Um, not that this is going to make it, you know, a fundamental difference, but, I, but because it's the right thing to do, 
Uh, I think we need to change the tone with China, treat China with the respect that it deserves. That's a very basic point, but it's something that bears repeating. Uh, you know, there, there are many things about China that do deserve respect in terms of how it's brought many, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty into the middle class. Uh, I think returning to normality in the sense of a one China policy, I think will be important. Stop goading China where it's frankly not necessary, but being tough um, <laughs> at the same time. Finding ways where we can collaborate with China, particularly on climate change, will be essential. Without China, there is no way we can address the climate crisis, which is now deeper than it was four years ago. On trade, the area where I feel particularly passionate about, I want us to sit down with the European Union right away to align, whenever possible, our policies toward China to ensure that the Chinese stop abusing uh, the existing rules uh, on trade and investment. And there are many ways we can do this uh, by sometimes closing off our markets uh, and bringing more cases to the WTO, reforming the rules so that they are not abused in terms of, for example, the time that it takes to resolve disputes, in terms of the questions that are put to the dispute settlement panel to ensure that laws are not made by judges, uh, and by having tougher rules on subsidies and on state-owned enterprises, just to name two examples. You know, the, the last thing I'll say here, Joe, is, you know, it's remarkable to me that the U.S. Has, has failed to take up the offer from the EU to join in this key battle. The Chinese have been the beneficiaries of the U.S. basically leaving a vacuum. Thank you. A few words then on uh, the Middle East. What could and should an Atlantic alliance, United States and Europe, be doing in relation to the Middle East? Fortunately, uh, this was not a topic that kept me uh, occupied uh, in Brussels. I say fortunately because there are no simple answers in that region. Um, you know, look, there are certain decisions that this president took that will be difficult to unwind and politically difficult to unwind. And here I mentioned you know, there are lot, lots of things, but one is the move of the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, there, there are other things as, as well. Um, whether or not we can save the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is yet to be determined. Uh, whether or not we can extend the existing agreement to cover other areas, um, such as ballistic missile technology or Iran's you know, involvement in terrorist activities around the world is yet to be determined. Whether or not we can extend the agreement in time is also still to be determined. But the bottom line is that the impending collapse of this agreement has not made that region safer. In fact, I would argue it's made that region more unstable because the Iranians are now clearly in, uh, are not in compliance uh, in terms of their enrichment activities. Um, so, but you know, there will be an there will be an attempt to save that agreement. Uh, Turkey will remain a major challenge for the alliance, for NATO, for Europe. There are no easy answers there. We cannot afford to quote unquote lose Turkey. Uh, it's too important a democracy. It's too important an ally of NATO. And of course, Erdogan understands that very well. On the other hand, I think we need and will speak out uh, about the increasing. Uh, or the, uh, the, the disappearance of a civil uh, civic society 
in in Turkey and the pressure of uh, the, the pressure that independent judiciary and media finds itself in Turkey. Um, and there will continue to be great skepticism about committing troops, um, you know, in in, uh, in 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 Middle East and further afield, for sure. There is very little appetite in the United States for that. Um, you know, just a final word about the Middle East peace process. I think it has to be a process in which all parties are involved, Joe. Uh, and I think the, the view will be that you can't impose a solution uh, on the parties. And here I include the, the Palestinian people. Um, a strong commitment to the state of Israel obviously will continue as it has on a bipartisan basis for forever. Um, but the idea that you can simply put a solution on the table without the participation of a major, you know, of a major party is flawed. Uh, I welcome, by the way, the fact that three Arab states have decided to recognize Israel and, uh, and make peace with Israel. That is indeed a major achievement of this administration it needs to be recognized. I was going to ask about Turkey, but you've covered that. So the last question on uh, geopolitical challenges to a combined European-U.S. effort, if indeed that uh, materialized, is uh, our old friend Russia and Putin. Well, there's a lot of unfinished business with Russia, frankly. Unfinished from the last election. I don't think that will be easily forgotten. Uh, one of my disappointments one of my few disappointments from the prior administration is that we did not respond, I think, uh, sufficiently to what was a clear uh, effort to uh, interfere with the U.S. electoral system. I don't think that's been forgotten. I think um, it is uh, very disappointing that uh, the U.S. and its Western allies have responded in an underwhelming way to a campaign of targeted political assassinations on the soil of uh, several West European countries. The message has to be very clear to Russia that this is totally unacceptable and it has real costs beyond the costs that have been imposed. But once again, there are areas where we can have and should collaborate with Russia where it's prepared to be a participant uh, in, uh, in issues of regional global concern, including climate change. So the door is never shut. Oh, and by the way, even on, on extending the, uh, you know, the START agreement, I think there are things that can be done with Russia. Um, so it will continue to be a very troubled relationship for sure. Uh, we didn't talk about energy, energy security. Um, you know, there, there have been some strong expressions of concern about the uh, gas pipelines uh, in the past, including the one now being finished with Germany, Nord Stream. Um, I think those concerns will continue, but uh, the, the bigger issue is one to reduce European uh, dependency on Russian sources of energy. Uh, and here I'm thinking particularly of diversification of supply and the routes that can be built by pipeline and by um, LNG terminals around Europe. Russian gas will continue to play a significant role, um, but Europe should do the maximum necessary to minimize the dependence on Russia and therefore Russia's ability to exercise blackmail. Let me end uh, uh, our conversation with a personal question. 
Would you be interested? Is it on the card that you would play some role in the new administration? Well, I know the team quite well. At least the, I know the foreign policy team quite well. I know President-elect Biden pretty well. I worked with him in Brussels and I knew him when he was in the Senate and I have enormous respect for him. And I joined the campaign from day one uh, and stayed, frankly, faithful throughout the process because I was and am convinced that he is the right man for the moment. Um, I am happily, I'm, you know, I'm happy in the private sector. Um, so I'm not sure whether I will go back into government. If there's a way I could be helpful, uh, I, I would love to be, particularly on European affairs. Thank you very much, uh, Anthony Gardner. Thank you. Great to be with you again. This is Argelia Keral again. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast as much as we have. As I said at the beginning, it was very worthwhile, wasn't it? So do not miss the next chapter of the series Agenda Pública Conversations. Bye-bye.